Wait. Yeah. There. There we go. Anyways, back to the wall. We got a wall. All right, there. Now you can hear me. Um, today we're going to be talking about the gospel. And everyone's like, oh, the gospel. No, it's the gospel. Yes. This is the best part. Uh, this week I spent some time doing some reading on the gospel. Um, this is a great book called The Gospel. Its subtitle says, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. I uh, This book was... A, Excellent. And it's one of the books that it's out on the table right now because we don't have a library. Uh, so if you wanted to borrow it, it'll be back there after the service. Just borrow it. Don't keep it. Um, because somebody else might want to watch it. Also, this yesterday, Stephanie and I watched a documentary called American Gospel, Christ Alone. I can't endorse that. Any, if you're going to spend two hours watching something this afternoon, go watch that. It is an amazing documentary. I just, I was almost crying. And I don't cry, right? Like, I'm just like, God is so good. He is so good. Um, and if you don't have the ability to download it, uh, I'll be getting a DVD in however long it takes for something to ship. So, in about two weeks, uh, for those who have a DVD player. For those who are younger, it's a circular disc, and you put it in a... Thing. It's not even a Blu-ray, guys. It's a DVD. Um, so that's an exciting thing. I would just encourage those two things. The Gospel uh, by Ray Ortland. He's a pastor uh, down in Nashville. And also the Gospel, the American Gospel. Um, if you Google it, it'll come up. For those who are older, that's a... Anyways. Two... Have your Bibles with you. We'll be reading in 1 Corinthians. Paul's amazing little condensed uh, idea of what the gospel is, something that's easy to remember. Paul lays it out for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Also, Romans 1 to 4 is also. Another, not as concise, but another great few chapters that explain what the gospel is for us and what it means. Before I do that, let's pray. Father God, I just come to, I just come to you right now. As we continue to worship you through the opening of your word, Lord, I pray that indeed it is your word that is spoken. That this isn't a time when opinions are said, but that your word is proclaimed. Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you. I want to praise you. Praise your name. Lord, there's no amount of gifting that can make this turn out well outside of you. So by your spirits, by the Holy Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power, the appropriate affection. Use this sermon, Lord, for your glory and your glory alone for the joy of your people and salvation of the lost. And amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1. We're just going to go to 4. says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you this question. What is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Now, husbands, this would be a good time to lean over to your wife. Yes. And say, you are the most beautiful thing I saw this morning. But what is it? The sunset? Sunrise? Before, before we had kids, uh, Steph and I were just recently married within the first year. I was working like four jobs. It was nuts. I don't remember it at all. Um, I thought kids was bad, but I don't remember the first year of my marriage. Um, I was doing school still, so don't get married while you're still in school. Um, but I remember I used to drop her off at work because we were both working. Um, and then I would drive to my job. I had a uh, retail job in Burlington. We lived in Hamilton. I did a retail job in Burlington. That was, a, that was dumb. You don't make enough an hour to drive that far. But that's what I was doing. And Burlington's right on the lake. So as you're driving, I don't know if you're aware of it, but as you're driving, we came from the east side of Hamilton. So we would go over the bridge, over the Hamilton Bay, and we would come by onto the highway, we'd go, and I would drive through downtown. And on downtown, Burlington is the beach. So I'd always take time, and I would just park my car there, which was this wonderful four Taurus. It was like, it drank too much and smoked too much, but it was so... <laughs> so comfortable it was like riding a couch um, but I would, I, would, I would park it in, the, in, the, in Spencer Smith Park in their parking lot when they had one and I would just watch the sunrise it was beautiful right over the lake just a beautiful sight and it's something that I, I still think about to this day and as I think about what we're talking about today what is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen What is the most beautiful thing you've ever experienced? And before we get very far, I'm going to make this challenge to you that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen should be the gospel. The most beautiful thing your ears have ever heard should be the gospel. And my prayer is that as we simply talk about what the gospel is, that if you haven't heard the beautiful sound of the gospel and how much it makes Christ look so magnificent, is that I pray that you do that you hear it today. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's writing his letter. In the first verses, verses 1 to 35, he makes a very bold argument about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself, why is Paul making so much emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus indeed died, but he also rose again. He takes a long time to break this down, that this is important. See, what has happened to the Corinth, the church, the local church in Corinth, is that they began to deviate from the gospel that Paul had preached to to them. They began to slide on some of the facts. 
one of the facts that they were sliding on was this, did Jesus truly rise again? See, they, and Paul comes into this letter not in terms of an angry, gun-slinging sort of anger type thing going on here. He's coming with them with compassion in this text because they're confused. So Paul, in a pastoral heart, comes to them and says, let me remind you once again of the thing that I preached to you. Let me remind you of the thing that you received. You received this gospel. It is yours. You accepted it. The gospel that you are standing on. The gospel that will hold you fast. And he reminds him again of the importance of it. Because as he says right there at the end of 2, unless you believed in vain, if one is to take any part of this gospel and take any of it away, add to it or take away, you believe in vain. For the Corinthians, it was the idea that Jesus Christ indeed rose again. See, the Bible comes along and says in Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But what is the gospel? And Paul gives a very concise definition of what it is. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scripture. So Paul comes and he says, now I would remind you. He wants to make this quite clear to them, to this community, to this family, what they already know. That the gospel is about to be proclaimed here. That the gospel is, is, is what your past, present, and future is based on. It is what you don't just hear when you are converted and believe in it, it is something that's ongoing in your life. It's continuing to work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul comes along earlier in this letter to this local church. He says, For if I preach the gospel in chapter 9, verse 16, that gives me no ground for boasting, he says. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And Paul preaches the gospel. And he's warning them. So the point is this. That the resurrection of Jesus belongs to the teaching tradition of the gospel. That's what Paul wants to make here. If I were to take that out of the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. That's what Paul says. And if I believe in anything different than that, I believe in vain. I am not saved. The resurrection is and always has been the foundation of all preaching about Christ. Without it, the gospel dwindles into an inspiration of stories of a wise teacher who suffered an heroic Horrific death. 
Paul hints that if they moved from this belief, it brings their salvation into question. See, the resurrection here is, is the keystone that integrates the incarnation in Christ's atoning death. If it is removed, the whole gospel begins to collapse. You don't have a foot to stand on. If there is no resurrection of the dead, humans remain under the tyranny of sin and death. There is no hope. There's just despair. I was reminded about this again because yet again the United Church was in the news. Because they somehow think that it's okay to have an atheistic pastor. Pastor. False teacher. False prophet. And they actually had a council to see if that person should remain in the United Church or not. And the United Church came along and said, no, there's room for this person. See what happens when you start fooling around with the gospel? Everything falls apart. Everything. When you deny the deity of Christ, when you deny that indeed he died and rose again, when you deny that you are a sinful person and in desperate need of a savior, everything begins to collapse. And you don't have a foot to stand on before a holy God. It's the gospel. So if I take any part of it, of the gospel, or I preach to you any part of the gospel that adds or takes away from what God has defined as the gospel. Remember, expository preaching. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what I feel. This is what God says. Which is why one of the, this is a rabbit trail. One of the first things to go in a church is always the, always the inerrancy of the Word of God. Because if that's no longer the standard of truth, anything goes. Anything. So something that we need to remember, again, is that Paul's not coming in here guns a-blazing. He's coming with a pastoral heart and he just wants to tell him, remember, remember all that God has done for you. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. And any deviation from it, any perversion from it, and movement from it does not make Christ look beautiful. It makes it look like you can do it. Not that you, are, that you can't do it. It doesn't make him look as sufficient for salvation. It doesn't look like he is enough when we start fooling around with the gospel. So what was being preached to the Corinthians here? Why does it show the beauty of Christ? What what is the text going to say about the fundamentals of the Christian faith? If you can't believe in this, you're not believing in the gospel. And if Romans 1.16 stands true, which it does because it's the word of God, you're not believing in what's going to save you. So what did he preach? Or what is the gospel? I've talked about this a number of times, the five-finger gospel. Christ died for our sins, rose again. 
It's a fantastic little thing. When we're, when we're coming to tell someone about Jesus, about the gospel, those are the parts that make it the gospel. If I don't talk about any of those parts, if I omit any of these things, it's not the gospel. Christ. The gospel is both the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life. There's this idea out there that, that takes, it's a heresy, really, where, where Christ gave up completely his deity, that he was not 100% man and 100% God, that he was just 100% man. No, he was Jesus Christ, he was God. He never lost that when he became. He added to himself humanity. He didn't give up stuff. He was always 100% man and always 100% God. I know all the mathematicians are going, that doesn't make any sense. I don't care. (laughs) That's what God says. The last three years of his life were spent doing good and teaching people about who God is, about who he is. You see, Jesus is unique. There is no other like him. He is therefore irreplaceable. There is no other savior. The world has no other hope. It starts with Jesus. Christ died. Jesus, both fully human and fully God, was put to death on the Roman cross. He actually really died. He didn't go into some sort of comatose state and somehow live through getting stabbed in the side. And then live for three days of a bleeding gash in the tomb with no medical care. Like, come on, guys. He died. Blood stopped pumping. Heart stopped beating dead. He died. Jesus, both fully man and fully God, was put on that cross and he died. To the point that when his body was taken down from the cross, it was buried in a Jewish tomb. This death of Jesus was not an accident. This was a plan. Jesus, the Messiah, died instead of us. We who are sinners. And for our benefit. This happened all according to what God had prophesied through his word all the way back to the prophets, all the way back to Genesis. He died. Christ died. And then he goes on that he was buried. Just in case you didn't think he died, he was buried. He only buried dead people. Confirms that Jesus indeed died. Christ died for, sometimes, as we talked about before, sometimes the biggest theological words, words are just three letters. Like, but, now for. All, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was writing to Christians. That is why he tells them that Jesus died for our sins. The death that Jesus died was for all those who repent, those who turn away from sin and believe, have faith in Christ alone to save them. Christ died for our sins. All of us were born with an inclination to sin. And we've talked about this before. For those of us who are parents, I know I didn't teach my kid to say no. I don't know if you did. I sure didn't. Or to lie. 
or to steal, which all kids do, especially when there's cookies involved. (laughs) We were all born sinful. All of us have sinned in real time. God told the first man, Adam, that if he sinned, he would surely die. We see that in Genesis. The penalty of all sin is death. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to die in our place. He took our sins on himself and suffered the punishment for, of God in our place. The gospel is saying that you aren't good enough, but Jesus is. See, in our gospel presentations, and I've been guilty of this so many times, I downplay sin. And when I downplay sin, I downplay the holiness of God. The problem is this, is that we've sinned against the holy God. That is our biggest problem we have in our entire world. Whatever you're facing at this moment, that's a bigger problem. Because it's internal. It's forever. Whatever you are suffering from, and I know it's true, it's real, it's painful, I understand that, but it's only temporary. And that's why the gospel, we'll talk about later, is a beautiful thing for the Christian who suffers. I was reminded again yesterday, uh, while I was watching the documentary, remember the 21 Egyptian Christians who were killed by, by ISIS. And I still remember watching that video going, years ago, thinking, there's so much peace on their face. I don't know if I would have so much peace on my face as I was being led to my execution. But why? Because they understood what God has done for them. That God is enough. The Bible challenges the self-flattery that we cling to in our world today. It doesn't say that you're special How? First, the law of God exposes the fraudulence of our virtue by showing us the true holiness of God. We don't deserve as much as we think we do. Second, the Bible simply changes the subject to how much God loves the undeserving. Do you see the picture of the beauty of Christ that is painting, being painted? The law of God exposes who we are. But then also the Bible simply changes the subject to how much God loves the undeserving. In other words, the gospel helps us to stop barricading ourselves against God because it's evil people in denial whom God loves so massively. When I truly understand the holiness of God, and what he has saved me from, I'm speechless. Speechless. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It calls for a radical response and that our greatest need in this world is a need for a savior. And then the last part, the full hand raised and was raised. Christ died for our sins and was raised. 
This is the penalty. This is, sorry, this is the primary tenet of the Christian faith. The rejection of any of these things is to make the message not the gospel anymore. For the Christian, Jesus is characterized first of all by this reality. He died to take away our sins. So when we come together and we sing these songs, when we come together and open the word of God, we are being reminded of these things. So when we read those words, Christ died for our sins, the creed tells us that we, are all, we're, we were all alienated from God because of our rebellion and sinfulness, and the punishment for the rebellion is dead. But God's giant stamp of approval was that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. That three days later, he was no longer in the tomb. Our greatest holiday as the Christian faith is not Christmas. It's Easter. Because if Easter didn't happen, Christmas doesn't matter. So when we come together, that's why we come together and we praise and we worship and we're excited because Easter, God has risen. He has risen indeed. It's important. See, the big difference between the world's gospel, the one that's often out there, and the gospel that God talks about right here in His Word, is that every other hope is based explicitly or implicitly on how deserving we are. But the Bible says you deserve squat. In fact, it's very much in the negative. It's not just nothing, it's punishment. That's what you deserve. Only the Christian gospel is based clearly, boldly, and insistently on how loving God is to the undeserving. If you thought you could earn, demand, or fight your way through life on the basis of your own entitlements and cleverness, but now you find within yourself not light, but darkness and denial, not freedom, but impasse, if you have shocked yourself with the evil you're capable of and have given up on yourself in despair, the God of love waits for you with open arms today. That's the gospel. And it is beautiful. The gospel is only for those who are completely broken. Who realize that they can't go any lower because they can't get any higher. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It calls for a radical response and that our greatest need in the world is a need for a Savior. And that there is indeed a Savior. The gospel in a nutshell is this. The one and only God who is holy made us in His image to know Him. We see that in Genesis 1. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. We see that two chapters later. It didn't take a long time. We also see that in Romans 3.23. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for our sin and all those who would believe. All those... Sorry, all those who would turn from their sin and simply trust, rest. It doesn't mean 
the gospel does a radical change in our lives. You don't remain the same person anymore. God changes you. He makes you more like Him. Our obedience and our good works are because of our salvation. There's a major difference there. I am saved by God's grace. Therefore, I obey and do good works. Because of the Holy Spirit that's within me. Not the opposite way around. So in his great love, God became a man in Jesus. He lived the perfect life and died on the cross. He fulfilled the law and took our punishment. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted upon his own son. What an amazing thing. So that if you repent and believe, if you, if you turn from your sin and, and simply believe, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, you will be saved. So if you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He is gathering one new people to himself among all those who submit to Christ as Lord. See, the gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It calls for a radical response. The gospel isn't merely an additive that can make your already good life better. If that is the case, there's a lot of people all over the world who are just like missing the point. It's a message of wonderful good news for those who know and realize their desperation for, before God. So, what is our response to the gospel? What should be done when we sense our need? Our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and and what he has done. When these things all begin to come together, what should be our response? Is it to walk down an aisle? Is it to fill out a card, to lift up your hands? Is it to make an appointment with the pastor, which I would love? Is it to decide to be baptized and to join a local church? Well, any of those things may be involved. None of them are necessarily are. According to the Bible, our response should be to repent and believe. God calls us to repent of our sins and simply to rely on Christ alone. That's the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. It's the five-finger gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose again. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It calls for a radical response and that our greatest need in this world is that we desperately need a Savior. So why is this important? I don't even know if I need to ask this question, but I'm going to anyways, just in case. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It comes out in our lives. 
It comes out as we come together, as we gather together as a family, as a church family. It magnifies our witness to a world about the beauty of Christ. See, a biblical understanding of the gospel is important because the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And it is the only way for sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God. Notice that in the Bible, nowhere does it say, if you want people to be saved, be nice to them. You know that? You are to be nice to people, by the way. Don't come and be a jerk when you leave this place. We are to help the poor. We are to help those who are suffering. We are to care for one another, love one another. We are to do these things. But they're not what saves people, it's the gospel. So as I go out into the street and I give soup to the homeless, that's great. You should do that. But what is the thing that saves them? You just help their temporary needs. Without the gospel, without repenting and believing in the gospel, their status before a holy God still hasn't changed. So we give them soup. And then we talk about how there's a God who died for their sins and rose again. It's important. If we don't have an understanding of the gospel, it affects all that we do. There's no need for preaching. There's no need for counseling, discipleship, music, evangelism, missions, and on and on and on. Not only that, but everything in the church flows from its understanding of the gospel. Whether it's preaching or counseling or discipleship or music or evangelism, everything is centered around a proper understanding of the gospel. When we really get the gospel as a church, when it changes us in a radical way, it makes us different. And understanding the gospel creates a culture of grace where good things happen to bad people. Because that's exactly what happened to you. If a church is biting at itself, that's why Paul talks about it in Galatians, about devouring one another. They don't get the gospel. They don't get what God has saved them from. Did you realize that Psalm 51, when, Paul, when, Paul, when, when King David comes along and he says, Against you, O Lord, only have I sins. He's confessing his, son before, his sin before a holy God because he cheated on another man's wife and murdered that man. And his response, primarily, God, I've sinned against you. I'm in desperate need. If I don't understand the sin that I've been saved from, if someone comes and is malicious to me or gossips about me, what will my response be to that person? If I don't understand the gospel, if I'm the person who's gossiping and being malicious, what will be my response? Do you ever read in James about how the church was confessing to their sins, how in the world they did that? To one another? They were confessing their sins to one another. It's because they're gospel-centered. They understood the gospel and it came out in their lives. 
Every other hope is based explicitly or implicitly on how deserving we are. Only the Christian gospel is based clearly and boldly and insistently on how loving God is to the undeserving. If you thought you could earn it, demand it, fight your way through life on the basis of your own entitlements and cleverness, which is not just reserved for the millennials, but now you find within yourself not light but darkness and denial, not freedom but impasse, if you have shot yourself with the evil you are capable of and given up on yourself in despair, the God of love waits with, for you with open arms today. To really hear the gospel is to be shaken to your core. To really hear the gospel is to be changed. Have you heard the gospel? Not a soothing word about your goodness or about God's acceptance, or about Jesus' inoffensive willingness to befriend all, or even some conviction, convicting word about getting rid of some sin in your life. Have you heard the Bible's great message about God? Does it sound like the best news you've ever heard? Old sins forgiven. New life begun a personal relationship with God, your creator now and forever. What's better news than that? The gospel is the most offensive thing. There's nothing more offensive. You could swear all day long at someone, but if you tell them that they're wrong and that they need a savior, that they can't save themselves, that will be the thing that they're offended about the most. That's what the gospel is. I desperately need a savior. And God provided it in himself. There's no better news. If we both individually and as a church center our lives around this message, what would we look like? What would Noah look like? How much more would we display the beauty of Christ to a broken world, a sinful world? The gospel displays the beauty of Christ. And God uses broken people like me, broken people like you, to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel allows me to go have a conversation with someone who says to me, oh man, I can get into heaven, but I know you can. It allows me to go to them and say, <laughs> clearly you got me wrong. I'm just as broken as you. I look like I got it all together. I'm just as broken as you. Are we believing this? Who are you living out? How are you living out the gospel? How are you displaying the beauty of Christ in this broken, rebellious, sinful world? Let us boldly proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because as Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what? Let me ask you this again. 
What's the most beautiful thing you've seen? What's the most beautiful thing you've heard? As I was watching that documentary, I wasn't emotional because it was well done. It was well done. It was really good, actually. I was emotional because I was just blown away by what God has done for me. A church that is gospel-centered shows the beauty of Christ. They don't have a choice. That's who they are. Because it shows that our greatest need is not frills, but a Savior. And that, that, there, that there is a Savior for all who believe. And that the Savior is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. So how does the gospel shape us? When we become a people that are centered around the good news of Jesus Christ, what does it do in our lives? What does it do amongst us as a family, as a church? When we think about evangelism, or going to the other country and being a missionary and telling other people about the gospel, what does it do? We sure wouldn't be sitting around, but we would see the opportunities God has already given us to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel does this. For those of you who are younger, there's a great conference called the Cross Conference. And their slogan is this, hell is real, life is short, the command is go. If we were gospel-centered, what would it look like with Billy across the street? What would our relationship with him be like? Because we would understand that hell is real. We would understand that life is short because it's short we would understand that the command is to go. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no other way that someone is saved outside of the proclamation of the gospel. The Bible is very clear on that. You can't be nice enough to get people to repent and believe. One needs to see their current stance before a holy God and how desperate they are to have a Savior. Only the gospel does that. The complete gospel does that. When we are hurt by someone or feel we have been mistreated by someone, what does the gospel do? There would always be forgiveness offered. There wouldn't be bitterness being held on to because we would understand what we've been forgiven of that whatever we have done against the Holy God is far worse than whatever could happen to us. When someone makes a mistake or sins against us or just sins in general, have you ever thought, as I said before, how the early Christians were able to confess to one another their sins? It's because of their gospel-centeredness. How about when it comes to our money? The gospel shows us that our greatest treasure is not what is in our bank account, but what God, what God is storing up for us in heaven. That the gospel is more valuable than anything. That our greatest treasure is the gospel. Because by the blood of Christ we have been saved from eternal damnation. All I have, all I am, is His. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. 
It calls for a radical response. And that our greatest need in this world is that we need a Savior. It's the gospel. There's nothing that's going to get, like, it's the gospel. I don't even know. My prayer this week has been, help me, help us to be a gospel-centered church. Bye. If you didn't notice, there's a big white wall. And it says that very same thing. Help us to be a gospel-centered church. Bye. I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray with me this week, next week, the week after that. Forever. The wall's going to come down eventually, but it doesn't mean you stop praying. Keep praying. That God, by His Spirit, would make us into a gospel-centered church. Because that's what attracts people. Music doesn't do it. Preaching doesn't do it. Having a young, good-looking guy up here doesn't do that. I know. It's the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that saves people. It will be the only thing that we continue to proclaim from this pulpit. It is the thing that we will rely upon the most. I'm not saying that music doesn't matter. I like, you know, we can argue about that later. But our hope for the nation should be the gospel being proclaimed, should it not? Our hope for our neighbor in the Carling area is the gospel. Our hope for our grandchildren, my children, is that they would believe the gospel. That's what I want. So I want you to pray with me this whole week and next week. And every week, God, help us by your spirits to be a gospel-centered church. What does that look like? Write it on the wall. It's the one time you're going to be allowed to write on a wall. So go write it on a wall. It was fun. I did it. The whole time I'm thinking of my mom. I asked permission if I could write on that wall too. So my prayer is this. That we would have a great understanding of the gospel. That we would see how it just displays the beauty of Jesus Christ. There is nothing better. That's why Paul can say, in the midst of being like whipped and stoned and shipwrecked, I count it all loss. Because he has the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understands his status before a holy God. That it is only by the blood of Jesus that he could be before a holy God. And it judges everything he does. It changes everything. The gospel shows the beauty of Christ. It calls for a radical response. And that our greatest need in this world is the need for a savior. And I hope you see, it doesn't mean that we don't help people. Don't ever think that I said that. But it should mean if we understand what the gospel is and that 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 is their greatest need, I'm going to boldly tell them, here's some food. 
Let me tell you about Jesus. How God died for your sins. And you're all again. And pray with me. That God would make us and make me and make you into a gospel-centered people for His glory, for His honor. God, I pray that You would strengthen us in the gospel. That you would have a greater, that we would have a greater understanding of who You are and who we are. That our greatest need was and is a Savior. And that you came down, that you added to yourself humanity so that you can take our place, our punishment for all who believe. Make us more and more impressed with you this very day. Cause us to grow in the gospel and to walk in a manner worthy of it. Let's continue to worship him today.